automating the entire Parliament Precinct Network with John Capobianco. Episode 78. In this episode, we are going to highlight automation in the real world. Today's topic is a real automation use case with all the good, the bad, and the ugly that goes into, goes with a production environment. I'm joined once again by my good friend, John Capobianco, and he is going to dive into how automating the entire Canadian Parliament Precinct Network happened from start to finish. This is a part two from Zigbit's Network Design Podcast, episode 75, where John highlighted the network design transition he went through from a legacy Nortel network to a world-class, enterprise-wide Cisco network that ensures business and customer success. Hey, if you have had a chance to listen to that episode, I would highly recommend it. Truly a great design use case. And if you want to go listen to that, it's zigbits.tech slash 75. In this automation case study with John, John is going to talk about Python, Ansible, CICD, Git, GitHub, and so many more automation tools. You must listen to this episode. I promise you, if you're in automation, you want to hear a real world use case, listen to this episode. This is real, my friends, and it starts right now. So stick around and here we go. Welcome back, my friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets out there. We have another episode of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than those gigabytes. We strive to provide real-world context around technology. What's up, everybody? I hope everyone is doing great. Zig Ziga here, and welcome to episode 78 of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast. Once again, my name is Zig Ziga, and I'm here to help you with network engineering, network design, and network architecture. We have our very first DevNet, DevOps, automation, programmability, real-world use case slash case study today. And I'm super excited about this show, and I hope you enjoy it. John, welcome to the ZigBits Network Design Podcast. Once again, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about today's discussion, uh, pick up where we left off. So thanks for having me again. Yeah, yeah. So real quick, so that people are listening... uh, where did we left off? So I think what would be beneficial here um, that, you know, everyone, we did an episode a, a few weeks ago, uh, Zigbit's Network Design Podcast, episode 75, uh, zigbits.tech slash 75 are the show notes. Uh, but w- could you give a quick two minute kind of overview of what we talked about in that episode just to kind of set the stage for everyone? Yeah, so I, I uh, we, we recapped the uh, journey from taking a, a, a brownfield legacy aging poorly designed network and transforming it into a modern next generation uh, infrastructure for the Parliament of Canada, the House of Commons, under a program called the Next Generation Parliamentary Precinct Network Program, NGPPN, as we call it internally. And um, we talked about replacing the infrastructure from top to bottom, from the perimeters to the data center to the campus, which is about 50 buildings, and the wide area network, which is about 450 buildings. Um, and how we did that over about four years. Wow. And that's sort of where we left off. And we talked about all of the new services that that that, that next generation network then became the foundation and platform for the digitization of higher level functions at the parliament. So digital committees and um, digitally onboarding new members of parliament when they're elected and having wireless capabilities and enhanced security through 802.1x and... Um, a, a more secure, robust, high-speed network for the for the country's government. That that's that's a lot, right? So we talked about a lot there, um, and I guess I would summarize it as well as a true enterprise architecture, uh, next generation environment that really supports the business. Now, again, it's not a traditional business, but you're literally changing workflows and governance and structure on how the parliament works. Yeah, that's a good way to, to to wrap it up. So the funny thing is today we're going to talk about automation. And the so it's built, it's great, and you're done, right? End of job, you walk away, the network's built. We all know it doesn't really work that way in the real world. There's new demands, new buildings, changes to services, new tenants. Uh, there's the ongoing care and maintenance of this large um, monster, right? So that that is what led me to automation was the complexity of the network, the scale of the network, and the agility and the bottleneck that the network had rapidly become for the business. So those three things were my driving factors to automation. And um, we had done some 
automation when we, uh, for example, plug and play. If anyone's used plug and play with uh, where you set up a server and it uses, you plug in your hardware and it picks up a DHCP address and then pulls a configuration. Um, we did do a lot of that to scale all of these floors at the access layer, but we hadn't really done full configuration management, ongoing automation. Um, it was very much a waterfall approach where, you know, and this is going to sound maybe familiar and maybe a sore spot for some people, but a, an architect or a designer comes up with the high-level design or workflows. Someone turns that into iOS or NXOS or command line configurations, and then that gets sent further down the chain to operations who schedule it and log into the CLI and copy and paste the commands line by line, device by device. Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> So at scale, though, and at complexity, a lot can go wrong, right? Every human touch point is an opportunity for a misstep. I'm on the wrong device. I pasted the wrong code. I had the wrong thing in my copy-paste buffer. I hit space. I typed the wrong VRF. Whatever could happen, right? Know. We never make mistakes. And then, Come on. No. And, and even, even if you're good, like I consider myself a CLI wizard and I can fly through the command line and go device to device to device. But that's not, you know, you don't want half to have to have heroic effort every time you want to make a change on the network, right? No, exactly. So I had a, a particular change, and I'll talk about the design because it's a design-focused discussion. So we wanted to, we were implementing the, the kind of fourth or fifth phase of our NGPPN, which was the data center. And what we had realized was we had made, I don't want to say mistakes, but we had made some decisions, some design decisions upstream. And these could be simple things like the names of our VRFs. Um, they were little things like that. So we thought, when we're going to put the data center in, we're going to have a bit of an outage anyway. Let's take the opportunity to clean up the campus in preparation for a more homogenous, well-named, seamless um, structure between the campus and the data center we were interconnecting. Now, this meant changes at every VRF on every physical router on all 50 buildings at the distribution layer. And how many routers was that? Because you said earlier there was like 50 buildings and then there's yeah, there's sites. About, so, so we're talking about 50 uh, buildings, so 50 physical routers, the global routing table, and then each building could have a variable number of virtual routers depending on the tenant of that building. So up to... You know, we're talking about 300 routers Ooh. if they were all physical, right? Now, now and, do you have an idea how long that would have taken before you did the automation? I'm just curious. Bob. Yeah, so our approach was to use some existing Cisco um, capabilities on the, on the distribution layer that we have. So the config replace option, which is very handy. Now, not every platform supports that. But what you can do is put a, 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 a target state configuration in VRAM and then use this config replace command to seamlessly it's like doing a right uh, copy start run except not destructive right yeah, so exactly statefully replace the memory with the copy and it also has a nice rollback feature so that was our approach using the cisco automation they give you they do give you some tools to automate it's not all about python and ansible right <laughs> there are things like config replace but then so then we did the timing to your point right we're looking at um Call it half an hour a building okay. times 50 buildings. Yeah. Um, not good, right? And and the thing is, the way the sequence, the way of sequence of events work, that first building you touch is going to be offline until the very last building is done because the core happens last. So that first building you're leaving dangling from eight in the morning when you start until whatever time in the evening when you're done your last building. Wow. Not good. Yeah, that's a huge so, impact, right? A huge impact. Right. I did the math real quick. It took me a minute, actually. I was like, how do I do half an hour and right, 50, right. 50, 50 buildings and, and, and all that? So, I mean, if it takes half an hour um, per building, right, uh, what's that math? Is it 25, 25, hours? 25 hours, right? That half of it? I guess, yeah. And then say you divide that into a couple of teams of operators and maybe tackle it. You know, this group will take on these 10 routers and this group will take on these. You know, you can slice and dice it a little bit with human scaling. But at, so this is around 2017. I combed over my emails. My first ping on the radar of Ansible, which which is, you know, if anyone who knows me, I'm, I'm you know, in love with Ansible. <laughs> but I, I found it in a, through an article or something led me to find it and in April 2017. And then. I was like, maybe we could apply some of this Ansible stuff 
to this config replace. Maybe I could mix and match and and orchestrate and automate the sequence of events through this automation tool. Now, this is where I believe I made my first mistake <laughs> was to try to use something new like Ansible in a production facing, <laughs> very complicated, very complex series of events, right? I, 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 but you know, you don't know what you don't know and necessity is the mother of invention and all that good stuff. So I took it on and um, here's, here's my recap. After about six weeks of development, and I did say six weeks, we had it working and, and we scheduled the change and a bunch of people came on site and we pressed the magic button and we waited and 45 or 48 seconds went by and then it stopped. Ooh. And I, I, I apologized to the room. I said, geez, I'm really sorry. I did this in the lab. I swear this was going to work. Something, you know, uh, and then the operator says, no, no, look. All the new routes are in place. All the new config. No, no, we're using the new naming convention. Look, look, look. So we start hopping the machines and and the traffic flow wasn't disrupted. And it was like totally seamless and went totally off like perfectly, right? And there's celebration and everyone, the, you know, everyone's minds just get blown. Like, what could we, what else could we do with this, right? But there was in my, in the back of my mind, there was this nagging like, that shouldn't have taken six weeks. Like, there's no way this is what people mean by automation as the future. That was toiling back and forth with, and, and here's why. It's because I didn't have the right tools. I use my trusty old notepad and, and WinSCP and, and a Linux box, and I wrote my code in Windows and Lin notepad, and I transferred it over to Linux, and I did trial and error back and forth. And my syntax was wrong, and my YAML was wrong, oh. and I had typos, and I had files called, like, working v2 underscore good underscore not tested v3 right like it was just awful just awful so the processes weren't there i didn't really know how to work with these new tools i wasn't a software developer right um so the success happens i'll be stopped there do you have any questions do yeah i didn't want to i have some questions of course i didn't want to cut you off as always so yeah no i, I think it's a good time so that's that's my first attempt my first endeavor in network automation successful but painful yeah. and, and didn't, didn't feel like I had hit the nail on the head regardless of the you know positive production impact, right? So, but now we did cut the time down from 25 hours to 48 seconds. Yeah, 48 right? seconds. That's what I heard. I wanted to make sure that's what I heard. So, yeah, 48 <laughs> so seconds. legit, you went from 24, 25 hours to 45 seconds, 48 seconds, let's say 50 seconds, let's say a minute, let's say 60 right. seconds, right? Right, sure. Now, and obviously, the development process in that first attempt for you was six weeks, right? So there's an uplift here. And, and like you said, there's things that you didn't know, and you don't know what you don't know, right? That That is an underlying theme when you're starting out something new. You don't know what you don't know, and it takes time to learn that, and it takes lessons. But the fact that you were able to learn this, even if you didn't do it right, the right way, you're able to leverage it in production and cut down the deployment time from 25 hours to 45 seconds. At scale, right? At like scale. It, it yeah. just it just went device to device and and issued the command. Now, how you know so the people? How did you really do it? Well, we set up the orchestration so that one, it distributed based on the host name, a file called you know, um, target running config underscore uh, whatever the file type, no file type, and we distribute those through the tasks to each host. Then we set the you know, run the config replace command. We had a validation check in there to run the rollback if we lost connectivity or something. So there was some some safety nets built into this as well that didn't get in, invoked, but they were there. And then now the post, and, and I would do things differently now, and there's we'll talk about some tools that I could have made this even better, was operators logging in. Like I said, the operator called back to me, no, no, I've logged into the device and the validation looks good. So the validation post wasn't quite automated. But again, first attempt, something new, and it worked out very well. Uh, I'm in the IT department, and you know, most organizations kind of have that split with IT and IS, or the you know, the developers on one side of the house and the infrastructure people on the other side of the house. It was a, a senior um, director in the in the developer side who approached me. Everybody heard about this, obviously. This success went big, all the way up the chain. You had some big impact, right? So I've yeah. heard about it, yep. So he he thought it was funny that the network infrastructure guy was taking a stab at programming, right? And, yep. and he and I told him about the file names and the problems I went through and blah blah blah. And 
And he, he pulled me aside and said, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to sit you down with a few of our developers and we're going to get you a Git, G-I-T, repository. And you're going to start using developer tools and have version and source control. And it's going to solve so much of your pro- so many of your problems. And you can, since you're trying to work programmatically and treating infrastructure as code, there's, you know, there's a whole suite of tools that are going to empower you and make that easier and make that better and make that more powerful. And, and wow, I, so at the time it was team foundation servers and on-prem. So let me make a difference differential for anyone new here. There's Git, which is the software, the version controlling software. And that's, that's included with Linux distributions and you can install it in the windows environment. And then there's GitHub, which people have heard of, which is kind of the, is the central repository for Git repos. But it's not the programming language. Like there is a distinction between GitHub repository, the repository system, or a Git repo, or Git the version control system. So Team Foundation Server is kind of like GitHub, but on-prem and private for your network or your organization. And it's been rebranded Azure DevOps recently. The 2020 flavor is Azure DevOps, which is in the cloud and on-prem. They have both offerings. So we're going to get you a repository in this ecosystem. And right at the, you know, the first link I click, there's a few tools I have to install. I need Git. Yep. And then one of the other links in Team Foundation Server is to VS Code, which has become like my best friend in the world. I wish I could send the developers a Christmas card for VS Code every year because it's just <laughs> become so much like I live and breathe in VS Code now three years later, right? No, Notepad is, I'm not doing that anymore, right? So the VS Code is the the Integrated Development Environment, or IDE. It's really like a text editor on, on steroids. And it has extensions that you can enha- further enhance the power of the base editor. Okay. So that's became my ecosystem was, you know, Ansible still running in a Linux environment that had access to my infrastructure. So, so your Linux host with Ansible needs SSH connectivity, the management plane of the of the network you're trying to target, or HTTPS access if you're using APIs. So there's still some network firewall flows there required. And then it also needs access to your Git repository because you're going to develop how I do it, is develop locally in Windows in VS Code, push that to my Git repository in TFS or Azure DevOps, and then clone and pull that code down into my Ansible world and run my plays. Now, if the plays generate artifacts, intended configs, or markdown files, or CSV files, or whatnot, I then push those back up into the central repo. So we're working with software infrastructure as code, and it also scales much better. People aren't sending files back and forth. Um, people aren't you know, working on v underscore v2 or whatever files. Everyone works with a local copy of the centrally distributed version control code. So... Um, my colleague can add a VRF and a branch, Git uses a branching system, independent of me developing a separate bit of code in a different branch. And then Git does the mechanism of merging all that code seamlessly back into the main branch, which is where you run and deploy your playbooks. So that's a lot to unpack. But that's, that is how, when people say, what is DevOps or Net DevOps or what is working like uh, a developer mean? Um, that is what it means to me is to to use those tools to begin with, right? A lot of tools, right? I mean, it, yeah. it, it seems for me, okay, so I don't know anything really about DevOps. I, I, I can, I know programming. I know I have a, a, a computer science degree. Uh, I've learned a lot about programming when I went through my degree plan, but I have yet to jump on the automation learning curve. Uh, it is on my to-do list and, and I'm being fairly transparent as always. So. My first implication here is that there's a lot of tools that you have to learn. There's yeah. there's Ansible, right? There's the yeah. I want to hear more about the VS Code thing or you know program text editor. Uh, there's Git, there's GitHub, there's also concepts like CI/CD, and I hope yeah. we can get into all of that, right? There's also Docker containers. Yes. Uh, and maybe I'm missing something. So let let's no. let's spend some time and do a kind of brief, if you don't mind, overview of each of these tools and maybe how to sure. get started in them. Yeah. So. I, I kind of give you, you know, jumping two feet into the fire, right into a production change, and let's just automate it and go for it, right, and hit the home run. Where 
in retrospect, and where I'm and, and, and I'm doing this continuously, right? I, I'm still working on this here at the House of Commons. This is still so live, when we say right is when we say it's fully automated, right? I'll, I'll here's the building blocks and where you can start. I believe it's a bit of a pyramid approach, and the foundation is where we started, and, and it's truly um, there's a deck. If you go to my um, GitHub repository, hey, speaking of GitHub, um, if you go to my GitHub.com slash automate your network, there's an Ansible Fest deck in there, my Ansible Fest presentation. Um, start there, read that. But in there, there's a particular image of a pyramid that I've put together. And the foundation, the first big heavy layer of any pyramid, to me in this space is the tooling. So you need the right tools, Git, VS Code. It doesn't have to be VS Code, but an enhanced text editor. Um, yes, Docker is one of my tools. Azure DevOps is one of my tools. And then even things like JSON and how to read a JSON file, how to get JSON data. RESTful APIs, I would consider one of those tools. Postman, an API browser and development tool, I would consider one of those tools. Um, I'm probably missing a few Python, YAML, Jinja2. Ansible, right? Oh, that wow. mix of tools. Spend some time and build up. And now, I'm not a Git expert by any means. I, I get by on the eight Git commands that I've memorized in the order that I need to run them to be successful in Git. Um, I'm going to throw these out there. I'm, I'm not affiliated with them, but learn Git branching, all one word, learn Git branching.js.org is an interactive online web page that will teach you everything you know about everything you need to know about how to get around git and branching and the terminology like git push and pull and commit um, so that's all there and then there's another great website when you once you've learned git a little bit you're going to get in trouble with git oh shit git all one word is another really fun <laughs> it's a fun website that takes problems that you commonly incur in git and explains how to get around them or get out of those problems. So those two websites will get you going with Git, and there's more out there, believe me. Um, now, VS Code, the base editor is great, but you want to spend some time looking through the extensions. Then again, in my in my Ansible Fest deck, there's a slide there just about the extensions that I use. So I use extensions like YAML and Ansible and Python so that the editor can highlight in colors and underline problems it's known as linting. It can lint the code so that I don't have to run bad code and get an error. I can fix it right in my editor because the editor is helping me write, um, you know, well-formed code as it's known. Now, you mentioned the computer science degree. I happen to have a computer programming diploma, three-year diploma from community college. That's all I've needed. And and then with Ansible and Jinja and and where your logic lives. You know, it's if, else, and if logic, and for, and for loops. Okay. That's really All about right. it, right? Now you can get into things like filters and more advanced regex and things like that. But at the foundation, it's for loops and if statements. Now, now that you have the toolkit, right, you're going to need to establish connectivity to the devices. And I mentioned that already. You need SSH, HTTPS, and credentials. Now, Credential handling, I'm going to stop and mention it. You can do it a couple of ways, right? Security wants to make sure automation is secure. You want to make sure automation is secure. Now, there's the problem with Git is that it's a central repo that people can clone and get the code. So you don't want to keep plain text enable passwords, right? Admin my secret <laughs> in yeah. plain text in a, in a connection string for Ansible, right? That's no good, no bueno. You need to have either a prompted mechanism, and I'll talk about the problem with prompts, um, which are secure, but they don't lend themselves to full automation like a Docker container. You want to run these things in containers down the road where they just run like software releases, and there's no opportunity to answer a prompt. So Ansible has a tool called Vault, and, and there's a nice web page out there that you can follow to change that my secret encryption into an encrypted string of just garbage. And then you use a vaulted key to unlock that file at runtime. So then in your Git repository, you're safely enabled, you know, you can safely store your enable secret because it's just garbled text. 
that you need a key to unlock at runtime. Is that do you follow there? Yeah, that that's really cool, actually. So like you don't actually have to have it all in clear text. You create that that almost hashed secret. It is. You know, and then you have a, a key to leverage that hash secret so that no one else can use it. So when you upload it to Git, it's there, the ha- that, that, that hashed value, but they can't leverage it because you have the key. And so it's like a, a I mean, it, it's it's a fully secure way of doing it, right? It's not, there's yes. no limitations to it. it. It's a private key and then a public key kind of situation. Yep. So that works very well. And, and um, so now, okay, I have my tools. I can connect to a device. Where do I start? Like, what could I do with this? So here's my recommendation. Ansible has what are called fax modules, like just the fax from Dragnet, right? Okay. These are safe. One, they're safe. They're not changing, deleting, configuring. They're not doing anything at all that could possibly disrupt network flow. So no modification. Gotcha. Right. Nothing. No management likes it. It's just read operations. It's essentially running a bunch of show commands, parsing the data, and giving you back JSON. Now, that's where I would start, is, is go get the facts, and there's iOS facts, NSOX facts, there's facts for VMware, Windows and Linux use a module called Setup to get their facts, Azure Clouds, AWS Clouds, Storage, you wow. name it. Okay. You can go get the facts. Now, what are the facts? Well, on a Cisco iOS device, it's every neighbor, CDP neighbor that's connected to the device. It's every physical interface, every logical interface, every IP address. On NXOS, you get things like power supplies and fan information. You get the modules. Um, you, you get a get whole bunch of information. All kinds of information. And the thing is, it's structured JSON. Now, that might not mean a lot to a newbie who doesn't know, you know, who's just learning. Like, like but me. Once, right? <laughs> once, right. But, but once you start to see JSON and read JSON, it's, it's machine parsable, but it's also human parsable. What I love about it is Ansible has techniques. So if you like YAML better than JSON, you can run that fax module through an Ansible filter called Too Nice YAML and save it in a file. Now I have a JSON file and a YAML file of all my facts at a point in time for audit information, for problem management, troubleshooting, whatever, you name it, you have those facts at the point in time. And it's a one-line command in Ansible, and it only takes a few seconds to gather and create. Now, I've gone a step further, and you can manipulate that JSON and create business-ready documentation, I call it, things like CSV files, Excel spreadsheets, right? Those magical, powerful Excel spreadsheets. You can take those facts, get the JSON, manipulate the JSON, and create a CSV file. Wow. All right. So now you have a CSV file of every CDP neighbor on your core or your building or your access switch, every wireless access point, every phone. They're all mapped in a CSV file that's sortable, searchable, sortable, filterable, bar graphs, pivot tables. If you have that Excel weenie that's just amazing with Excel, hand them one of these files and go, give me some magic out of this data that's, that, that is my network, right? So that's one asp- That's where I would start. Any new person Ansible, run the fax modules. They're very easy. They're very well documented. And they're valuable. They actually create something you can use and, and get value out of. Now, my next thing in the same... Okay, so... Let's call this the hunt for JSON, right? That's what we're looking for now. Can I get JSON back from the network and then turn it into spreadsheets, right? That's the, kind of the, the my so, obsession so, right r- now. Real quick, I mean, JSON's important then, right? That that is getting that back. You can do a number of things with it, as my assumption, based on how you're you're. I mean, it's more than passionate, right? You, you're looking to get that JSON. That's why you're calling it the hunt for JSON, right? Yeah, because it's it's. It's structured data, so I can let. So one, I'm making CSV files out of it. But two, I could write Python or other Ansible or other programmatic tools, language of choice, and test against that data. Wow! So maybe I run a Python loop that goes through each interface and looks for the keyword down, and now I get a list of every interface that's down programmatically, right? Or um, here's another example. So 
I we if you have Cisco Prime or Cisco Ice or Aruba or Vendor X, they likely have a RESTful API on their product. Ansible has a module called URI, URI that can do HTTP GET against an API. And what do you get back? Structured JSON. So I've written a playbook that goes against my prime API and creates the, here's the output, is a CSV file with all 3,000 wireless access points and 75 pieces of information about each access point. 2G clients, 5G clients, cap app tunnel status, bandwidth throughput, how long the tunnel's been up, you name it, I get the information in a one-line command that otherwise some operator would have to go through the prime GUI and click and click and click and find and sort and fill. Right, you don't want to be in the GUI. You can scrape that data and make your own reports using Ansible and RESTful APIs. Well, so you have Ansible. Sorry, yeah, it, it sounds like the scraping is actually a lot easier too. So uh, I toil, toiled, toiled, What's that's not the word. I, yeah. I um, played around with like VBScript and JavaScript years ago and I was automating things back then. And this was before we had all these tools. This was before even like, I'm going to butcher what it's called. Microsoft has a new automation item and I can't think of the name of it. Um, but this was like back when we had like batch scripting and, and you yeah. know, back then you were literally doing like key sends. So you're sending keys right to right. a window. And if you, if you lose focus on that window, it messes up everything. And like we would do something like, okay, I have to go update the IP address of the loopback address on a hundred devices. So you'd script it in VBScript and be thousands of lines of code because for whatever reason, right. and, and then you'd run it, but it's all send keys at the time and it's scraping out the output and putting it in a file. So this is, <laughs> I mean, again, I'm new to this, right? So, so, so this, I've got some good news for you, Zig. If you could do that, honestly, you're, you're going to take to this like a duck in water. You're, you're going to just love it. It's going to change your life and empower you so much. I, I mean it. If you can, if you have that back in the day, bash scripting, shell scripting, um, I, I mean, anybody, even if you don't have that for listeners out there, if you can make BGP neighbors or OSPF neighbors or a static route work, if you can figure out the OSI stack and make it a functional network, the automation is easy. It, it's if statements, it's for loops, it's YAML and JSON. It'll click in your head. It might take time. It took me, it's, I'm still learning. I got a tip on the internet last week. And I've been refactoring all my code uh, um, <laughs> uh, manically because I learned something new from the internet. So it, it will come, but but it's you should be excited about it. Don't be scared of it, especially you know given your background. So I mentioned two ways to get facts, and here's my latest thing, and and this is going to appeal to um, it's kind of like a to bridge the gap to give your legacy hardware an API capability. That's the way I look at um, at this next thing. So Cisco's released what are called genie parsers. Now, if you don't know what parsing is, um, regex is kind of like, is parsing. So you're going to run a command and then parse the output, look over the string mathematically and extract values appropriately that you're looking for. Now, with regular expression, that's challenging. It's doable, but it's very difficult. Genie parsers let you take a command, show IP interface brief, show interface status, show environment, um, some key commands. And you run them through the parser, and what do you get back? The structured JSON <laughs> version of that command. Yes, the JSON continues. So it's like the mask. It's like the killer with the hockey mask, Jason, right? It's JSON, though. He's just unstoppable. He's ever-present. It's, it's <laughs> there, right? So um, with the commands, now I can take a show interface status command and turn it into a CSV file or show environment command or show show X command, turn it into a sortable, filterable CSV file. Now at scale, you've got a switch stack with eight switches in it with 48 ports per stack. Do you really want to sit at the CLI and hit the space bar on the show in status command and look line by line and try to find that interface that says down? No. no, dump no. it into CSV, hit the top row, filter on interface status, down. Hey, look, these four interfaces are down. Like, easily doable. And, and, and you know what's neat? We've been talking about this for 10 minutes, and all we've talked about is gathering information and what you can do with it. 
Yeah. I could stop here and this would be like a valuable discussion, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm on the hook. To, <laughs> yeah, but we haven't even got to the real power, which is configuration management, where we're going to turn our configs into structured data and push intended configs out automatically, which is really powerful. So I would move up the ladder from that information gathering. You're going to have lots of muscle memory in Ansible and JSON and all that by the time you've documented your network state. And then you can move up to, say, tactical one-time changes or full configuration management. So, now, so our let's pro- do this. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to kick yeah. off for a minute, right? Let's. I have a couple questions, and I want to ask these real quick, and then we can get into an example of that configuration management. Um, so we talked about the tools. We talked about how to get started, right, and the facts modules and, and how to kind of get your feet wet. Um, I would like to know... What was the driving factor for the parliament to go this route? I mean, for you, right? For your networking team, is it to save right. time? Or is it to make things so that it's there's no fat fingering of configurations? Like, how big is your staff? Like, I don't know if it was a, a staffing thing. What what really was the main driver to go down this automation um, process for everything? Yeah, that that's a good question. So a lot of it's business value related, and you touched on some of our 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 reasoning. Uh, scale and complexity and avoiding human errors where possible. Um, part of it is is delivery times, obviously. But I, I don't want to give the impression that automation is simply about going faster. Yes, certainly we're going faster and we're able to push things out um, with much more agility and respond to business demands faster. There's also pragmatic things, right? You kind of talk to operations, go down into the weeds and say, is there anything you're doing three or four times a day or a week? Or are there things that you find tedious that you have to log into, you know what I mean, that you're doing manually that an automated solution would help you with? So it's not just about my vision and me driving it to say, you know, it's better because we're working with code and the tools are more advanced than network tools. But there's, there's you know, I want to help the business and achieve things. So here's a practical so, um, example. Um, and it kind of touches on our business. So there's certain committees, and that's when the you know the members and the the, the government get together to to establish laws or, or discuss sensitive materials or whatever business of parliament they're doing. Certain committees are are cut off from all communications. So they turn in their phones. There's no tablets. We knife, meaning we we have transceivers that we can power off to physically s- remove the fiber connections to the room. Wow. But there's the, the wireless is the challenge here. So as you may know, wireless is, is self-healing. So if I turn off five access points around a room, the 10 around them are going to try to crank up their power to try to fill that gap. Exactly, right? yeah. And, and that's a good thing. On, on, for 99 out of 100 times, that's a good thing. But when you want to black out, when I want to create a, a physical space without any airwaves, without any radiation for Wi-Fi, that becomes a challenge. So we had to work with our partners in security to sweep the room for signals. And then we shut off more APs or turned off different APs or, or until we got the mix right. Now, for certain rooms, this this is like 30 or 40 APs that have to be shut off. Wow. And the business can't proceed, right? They can't, they can't start doing business until it is a secure room. So that means IT's on the hook. And we're now we're the bottleneck. How quickly can you go shut those 35 interfaces on the right interface on the right device, right? It's, it's a manual thing and you don't want to be doing that. So again, automation, right? It's orchestrated, it's serial, it's on demand or scheduled. And the playbook doesn't make the mistake of the wrong port because it's programmed and, and we vet the program and the, the code is QA analyzed and more than one set of eyes is looking at it. And it's quick. An operator just, I don't want to say, it's not about the magic button, right? But the operator has the one-line command. We need to cut room 10 from the network, right? Cut room 10 playbook. Done. Taken care of. Turn room 10 back on. Run the turn 10 back on playbook, yep. right? So it's it's pretty powerful stuff. And that's just, you know, that's one example. Well, that's a good example, um, though, right? Like, that's a good example. So how, how does that work? It's one command, right? But it, how does it find out all the APs in that room, and then it finds the devices they're plugged into. Because I don't know if it's multiple switches that they're plugged into, right? It could be, I don't know if rooms have well, more than one switch or how that works. Yeah, so we, we put together through the through the manual exercise 
uh, with with the security partners. Once we established the list of interfaces, that became the the list of interfaces. Gotcha. We tested every once in a while to make sure that um, you know signal bleed isn't happening from another AP that's not in the list. So it is tested occasionally for for um, you know relevance, but but it's kind of it's not as dynamic as you would think. Gotcha. Understood. And, and that's and, and and actually that's you you bring up a good point. Um, where to get started? The CLI is not dead to me functionally, right? I still have to make that recipe work at the command line. So what you know, a lot of people want to know what my process is or how you do this practically. You're going to make those those run commands or config commands or whatever it is you're trying to do. You're going to have to figure out the recipe at the CLI, and then and then I like to wrap it in the Ansible playbook and make that work. And then we can, we'll talk about CI/CD in a little bit. I, I want to get there, but yeah. when when I'm talking about full configuration management, what I mean is to to transform a running config, so just a simple show run your running state into two separate artifacts. One is what I call a data model. And you know, you'll hear about data modeling or modeling data. Now that is a YAML file. And in that YAML file, it's made up of key value pairs and lists. That's it. It's a very simple okay. and it should be simple. So something like um, host underscore VLANs colon, right? Yep. And that's the, the the key pair value. And then under it would be a list of VLANs. VLAN 10, colon, enter name, blue VLAN. So I want to turn that that construct that looks what it looks like in iOS or NXOS stanzas on the CLI and turn them into human abstracted data models that are easy to read. And, and they don't necessarily have to be networking lingo or jargon in your data model. You should be able to give the data model to someone on the street and they could read it and kind of make sense of it, right? Yeah, okay. This is a switch and it has 10 VLANs and this VLAN is named Blue and it has four VRFs and whatever, right? So that's your data model. And then you're going to have a Jinja 2 template that takes care of the stanzas of configuration. Now, sticking on VLANs, that is on a Cisco switch, it's VLAN 10 and then a line, uh, two spaces the key name, and then the name of the VLAN, right? Okay. So in that template, you're going to have VLAN and then a variable, one line, two spaces, name, and then another variable. Those variables are the actual data in your data model. So then you wrap that, you do that one time in Jinja and make a for loop out of it. So you say for VLAN in host VLANs, generate this configuration stanza, end for. That creates a file, and now I have 10 or 20 or 50 or 1,000 VLANs modeled and configured and templated appropriately. Ansible has a module called the template module that I can push that template to my switch. And that's, that's how I handle full configuration management. Now you say, what degree, to what degree have you done this? We have done it to every line, every character in our running configuration. In the data center, on the campus, in the wide area network, every line of configuration is represented in a data model and a template. And um, we want what's called item potency. So now item potency is a mathematic thing that means you can run the same result a billion times and it will always generate the same result, right? It, it, it's a match. So what we want to strive for is our intent, an intended config on our Git repository that is exactly the same as the running configuration. And they're item potent and they match. And then everything is handled through code. If you have to add a VLAN or a route, or a VRF, or an access control list, or whatever it is you have to add, you add it to the data model. Now, something new, a new feature comes along. Let's say we want to add NetFlow. Well, NetFlow has its own configuration stanzas. So I'm going to make a branch in my Git repo called you know, NetFlow Development. I'm going to develop in my CLI the right mix of commands. Then I'm going to transform the commands into new Jinja template section stanzas and add the model data to the data model. 
And that allows me to scale releasing, say, NetFlow to 300 routers in just a few minutes, right? Wow. Okay. So my mind's a little blown here, right? And I'm, yeah. I'm taking a lot of this in, right? Because I'm new to this and I'm sure everyone else is too. Um, but that was a great, I think, walkthrough of how this actually functions and works with a lot of details. Um, so the, I want to kind of dive in just a phase so yeah. I'm interested, right? So that VLAN okay. example that you just did, right? Yeah. You pull out information. Um, how does it, you, I mean, you have a, a structured list of the VLANs with all the information for each VLAN that you now want to leverage and, and maybe push to devices. Is that just as simple as running some sort of Ansible playbook to then take those VLANs and configure them on those devices? Yeah. Yeah. Really? So, okay. so you're going to have your data model and template. And here's, here's how the way, here's a way to look at it at, at Ansible runtime. The two are compiled into the, the intended config that you're going to then push to the device. And, um, and Ansible will only push things that are not present on the device. So let's say I add a VLAN to my list and I rerun the playbook. It's not going to try to overwrite the previous 10 VLANs. It's only going to add the new two lines configuring the new VLAN. So it has some intelligence there to say, oh, I see there's a diff, push the diff, right? So what I really love about Ansible, and you've led me to a great point. I'm glad you asked that question. You can run Ansible with check mode. And it's one of the big highlights to me of Ansible and why I love it as a tool is that you can do a dry run of your playbook that will go through all the steps of your play, or of your, like all the tasks in your playbook, but it doesn't actually push anything. It doesn't make any modifications. It's like a dry run that you can validate your code and it will tell you at the end, it will say, hey, listen, had you pushed me, I would have added these four lines of config, meaning I would have added VLAN 100, John's new VLAN, right? Oh, that's what I want. That's my intent. Oh, no, I don't want to do that, right? It gives you that break point. So when, I, so when we move into operations, like in the real world, my steps are typically, one, generate the, generate the intent. So run the playbook in a documentation mode, and all that does is it doesn't even touch the device. It compiles the data model and the Jinja template to give me the file that would be pushed. So operations generates the intent, and we look at it offline. Yeah, that looks like I, what I want. Run it in check mode, a second validation step that will confirm to them, here's the 10 lines or 1,000 lines or zero lines of changes that I would have made if you had have executed me in execution mode, they review that or they send that upstream to a developer. Hang on. This doesn't look like what you told me. Are you sure this is the change we're trying to make? Right. There's a lot of QA capability here. So then we, we resolve and say, yep, that's what we want to push. Then they run it in full execution mode. Now, a little trick that we've learned is we run it a second time in check mode after we run it in execute mode. So that we can see that it doesn't have anything left to push. Meaning, run it in check mode, I'm going to push five lines. Run it in execute mode, it should have pushed five lines. Now when I run it in check mode again, if everything worked in the above step, there should be zero lines to push. And it should be item potent. If it still has those five lines, something went wrong and it didn't push the commands. So there's... You know, you're starting to work like a software developer, yeah. But you're you're inherently putting some validation into that process, right? You're you're saying, hey, we're going to do these, we're going to do this step to to see what's going to change. Then we're going to go ahead and deploy that change in some fashion, and then we're going to recheck to see if that change actually got deployed. Yeah, you know exactly, and and, it, and and they're all just steps in the orchestration. And and Ansible can, you know, it will give you a nice summary at the bottom saying, um, these, you know, here's what was pushed, and these four changes were made. Uh, it's it's very so I talk about why I picked Ansible. Um, you know, it being agentless is a big win. You don't have to actually modify your environment to start using it. You just start using it. Um, the barrier for entry is very low. It's it's very very simple. Especially like if you gather facts and write a little play to to make a JSON file out of the facts. Like if you take that as homework, like it, it's only going to take you ten or fifteen minutes to figure out, and then you're going to be like 
holy cow, I've just documented my network in 10 minutes. You know, artifacts that most networks don't have, the real state of the network in, in, in programmatic JSON files. It's just incredible. So like if uh, I had a network that had, let's say, I'm just going to throw random numbers out there, a thousand devices. Maybe I had a lab environment and, and a vert, like at home in my lab and I had a thousand devices. And if I didn't know what I've done in the last six months, because it's, I keep my lab up all the time. I don't have a thousand right. devices, just so we're clear. I might have like a hundred, right. but uh, my service provider networks and stuff. Um, so let's say I didn't know where everything was. Is I could easily, I don't have Ansible installed today. I don't have anything installed. I don't have Git. I do have a GitHub uh, repository for some stuff for Cisco Live. But other than that, I don't have anything. Right. That that time for me to install everything, get the facts configured, and then run a fax check or whatever we want to call it right. on all those devices, what do you think roughly that would be for an average person? Um, you know, I'd give yourself two hours, two and a half hours. You probably need about half an hour to – it depends on your Linux Um Let's say depend, Linux Linux dependent skills, but if you have a CentOS box, here's here's how what I would do. Okay. If you have Windows 10, um, install WSL2, the Windows subsystem for Linux. It's in your control panel. Turn WSL2 on. Go to the Windows Store and install Ubuntu. Now you can run Linux in your Windows environment without separate hardware or VMware or okay. anything. Cool. Cool. It just runs Ubuntu. Now if you can ping that switch from your Windows machine, you know, you're going to need to be able to SSH into it. There's no firewalls in the way, right? You're fine. In Ubuntu, install Ansible. And right now we're looking at your, your 10 minutes in. The install time, download from the internet. You're maybe 10 minutes in. Ansible takes a minute to install. Um, the fax playbook might take you 5 to 10 minutes to write, depending on how quickly you take in the, the information from docs.ansible.com. Um, and then it takes... 10 seconds to gather the facts from each machine and maybe two seconds to make each file, right? So like on a good day, you might be able to do this in 45 minutes. If you struggle a little bit, you're looking at a couple of hours. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just thinking, and, like, think of that, the impact right there, right? Oh, two yeah. Two hours yeah. and you can get a full inventory of what's out there and where things are running, the upstate, the downstate, the protocols, the neighborships. And that fax gets all that information, right? Yep, it wow. gets all just of that Just that stuff. alone. It, you're not even changing really anything. No, not even, nothing, wow. nothing. And, and so then you mentioned um, a couple other tools. So here's the pinnacle. Here's, and I'm going to finish on this note. we got about 15 minutes. I should be able to cover it. At the top is CICD to me, continuously integrated, continuously delivered. And so here's where Docker comes in. So Azure DevOps has the ability to build and release software. And in my terms, software is a Docker container image. So Docker, when they say image, and now I, I may be misspeaking, I'm not the best at this Docker stuff. It's very new to me. So, you know, I don't want any angry emails that I didn't get this right. <laughs> but um, so when they say image, it's like it's like a CD-ROM, like, like an ISO, like the ISO 9000 standard. Image is like an immutable, think of it as a CD-ROM that you build yourself, that you can't change once it's built. You can log into it and do stuff in it, but when you log out, those changes are discarded. Oh. So here's how I do it. In my Git repo, I added a new file called a Docker file. And in this Docker file, it's like those old batch files or INI files. I specify I want Alpine Linux. I need Python. I need Ansible. I need Git. I need this repo. And I need you to run this play. Um, I take all that in my Docker file. And then in Azure DevOps, I set up a build. And in my build, I say build from this Git repo and specify this Docker file as your Docker build image. It builds a container image and registers it with a registry. And that image is like those nesting dolls. I got it working at the CLI. I made an Ansible playbook make it work. And now I'm wrapping that whole thing in a Docker container image that I can run the container image um, without any humans, right? So then in, in, in a release, I schedule the release of that container meaning run that container somewhere. So now it's fully automatic. Those facts that I'm talking about, every four hours, release the container, which gathers the information and builds the CSV files and puts them back in the Git repository. It just runs. It just Nobody runs every four it. hours. And then the Docker, it does it does itself terminate? Like, does itself go away? Yep. 
it just destroys itself okay. at the end of the deprisioning, yeah. not terminate. Right? And, and in the, in, yeah, and in the dashboards, I can look at the interactive logs, so I actually have the full playbook, tasks and steps, and all the logging information available to me, and um, and it's just so incredibly powerful. So the continuous part, it actually makes sense. It's it's pretty more it's CI/CD is not as mysterious as you would think. The continuous integration. When I mentioned Git branching strategy, that is the trigger for continuous integration. So here, I I have I um I have just my core facts, and now I want to do my building distribution. So I make a branch. I do my development when it's all ready to go. I do a what's called a pull request, merge that back into main. If that's approved and happens, that action triggers a rebuild. Oh, there's new information to be stored in the Docker container. Rebuild the image. That's the continuous integration. Every time there's a pull request, rebuild the image. Right. Now the continuous delivery is, oh, there's a new release. Or there's a right, there's a yeah, new yeah, build. Yeah. I better release it automatically. Go ahead and trigger the release. So now it truly is code that's driving this, right? Infrastructure is code is I I add a VRF, I do my pull request, it triggers the build, which pushes that VRF out to the network. Now, there's an approval process, right? So if I have a branch, oh, yeah. I say, there's that, right? There's control yeah, there, yeah. just so we're yeah. clear. But like, so if I create that yeah, VRF. Any, any of my management, any of my bosses who have tuned into this, there is definitely <laughs> controls and change processes and testing and validation. All the good things. I'm simplifying this quite a bit. There, there's a lot more that goes into it. But but that's the gist of, of CI/CD, yeah. So so real quick, uh, and then we'll get into the rest. Uh, so the, if so I create a VRF, if I have a branch of whatever, let's say I have a branch of that router or that network. I don't know what the branch dictates or what the main dictates, right? But like I have a branch, and I'm going to create a VRF for a new element, a new secured, you know, line of business for the Parliament network. And let's say I'm going to call it Zig because that's what comes to mind, right? So it's Zig, and I'm done. I've done my testing. It's good. It's in the branch now. If I want to commit that to main. There's a process, right? There's an approval process. Yeah. Once it's Correct. approved, it commits it to main, right? And then now the automation will rebuild the Docker container with that new code in it from that main version in Git. You nailed it. Wow, that's you nailed cool. It. Yeah. And our processes, and, and that pull request gives us an opportunity. So we protect main. There's no direct commits. You need a pull request, and a pull request needs at least one reviewer, maybe two reviewers. So that's where I send it to a colleague and say, right, I've added this VRF. Could you please review my code? Look at the commit history. Look at the Git artifacts. They look over it all. Oh, you got an IP wrong. Or, oh, that looks good. They approve it. And then, right, and then the change management board dictates when that release can happen. Okay. I, we don't, we're not Netflix. We're not two microservices here where, like when I describe that, oh, a pull request triggers a build and they just push code out to the network. I'm not doing that at two in the afternoon on a Monday. <laughs> You're not right? doing it right now. Like, no, you got one going no, right our, this minute. <laughs> we've decoupled our 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 builds and our releases so that they're they're handled by, you know, we're still having there's still governance, delivery. right? There, there's a governance yes, process yeah. underneath the hood, exactly, right? And it's still easy, right? It's still simple. It just you have to get it approved by that that change control board. Totally understand, right? Now that approval process is that like a week, or a month? It depends on the impact. To be honest, we okay. have to juggle. Um, a lot of you things. Know, yeah, I got you. There's a lot of things to juggle. I, I, I that's a little bit of. I, I just say my, you know, I'm constantly waiting. When is it approved? When's it going to prod? <laughs> right. So I, I'm at the mercy of cab quite a bit. Um, yeah, I get that. I and, and, too. And I totally and, understand. And quite, you know, and it's quite the environment where you know be, we had talked about it in, our, in a previous episode, right? All the security cameras, all the security apparatus. Um, we we don't have the luxury of just of taking buildings down, you know, uh, without serious considerations so so it's very it, it's a balancing act right the CICD is incredible and if you know maybe if I was in a vacuum without a business behind it if this was my own lab yeah I would have this stuff continuously delivering all the time yeah um, that makes sense right it's a lab game. environment right, right? that makes but sense. in a business you this know it's a you, business impacting temper. change right so yeah I get it hey we're, we're, one more technical question for you yeah. what happens if something goes wrong like let's say you go through this process it's approved and then it does the automation it deploys it but let's say something wasn't known and there's a problem what what's the steps high level to get out of that yeah so we have a couple of options um because of this build and release idea 
um, our network kind of has like a version timestamp or version stamp on it, right? So version 1.0 of the network is today's version. I'm adding 1.1. I'm adding a new VRF. Uh, 1.1 is a bad release, right? That's a bad version. Yeah. Quickly roll out 1.2 to fix it or roll back to 1.0. So sort of like that, that, okay. that bad software patch that goes out, right? And because it's container-based, I can say just run the 1.0 container and release that code. Now, that's <laughs> it depends on the platform. I can do that with um, RESTful platforms where I'm using the API in a post. But certain Ansible things, right? It's just SSH serial SSH commands. It's not that I. It's not like a Cisco forty five hundred, unless I'm using config replace every time. It's harder to roll back, right? Okay. So we we we've been fortunate and we've been very careful and cautious and I want to say prudent, um, where we haven't actually had a lot of mishaps with the automation. I can think of one where I had to come in and get onto the console and and repair something. And, uh, you know, that's damages your reputation, it damages your progress and your momentum. Uh, and you kind of live with it for about six weeks and then everyone forgets about the, the big problem that happened. Um, but I have had it happen. You, you have to be very careful. The blast radius, right, is, is really what you need to consider. Yeah. Um, let's, you know, in the old days, that's the advantage of CLI to CLI has. Okay, here's your instructions operations. Go change all 50 routers by hand. They do the first router and there's a problem in the instructions. They only damage one router, right? They know enough to back out because they're a human. If I get it wrong in the code, <laughs> it's happy to go and destroy all 50 routers immediately, right? It's not, it doesn't have the smarts to take a step back and say, hang on, you got the IP wrong here. Uh, it's just going to blast it out and take down the whole thing. So yes, you're on a tightrope here with the automation. You got to make sure you have appropriate safety nets under you and and make sure that you know you get to verify cheat. everything right yeah you still, yeah you can't i cheat just as much it. as i can yeah you got to be very careful with the network yep hey uh john nice i really appreciate that man that's super helpful i thank you john this has been an amazing conversation it's amazing to hear the journey and, and the automation and the impact it has truly had for you and the parliament network what what advice would you give to finish off here uh, to the person that's just starting out into automation, maybe they are having a hard time starting out. What words of encouragement would you offer them at this time? Yeah, I, I want I want to be very positive and encouraging. And, and I know it's a lot. I know this is like a fire hose blast of new terms and tools and techniques and methodologies. Um, it will make your life a lot easier. I find I enjoy my work a lot more too, because it's like little logic problems every day where you've got to write little snippets of code to help you do your job. So um, take that first step and really, really go for it. Like this, this is the new way of doing things. Um, the CLI is, you know, it's got an expiry date on it. And the old way of doing things, or let's just say, you know, just knowing your network plus CCNA stuff. I don't know that that's enough anymore. I think you have to have some new skills and new tools uh, to stay competitive in the job market, but also because you can do a much better job using the new way. That's awesome. Well, you heard it here first. John, we're thankful for you to being here today. Looking forward to see what else you come up with um, on the automation front and networking front. Last thing, where should people be, uh, co sorry, where should people find you and learn more about your journey? Where can they reach out to you if they have questions? Yeah, so if you, I've tried to centralize everything at automateyournetwork.ca. So on there, there's a link to my book and all my podcasts. I'll be putting this up on there. Um, I'm on Twitter, John underscore Capobianco. I love to interact and reach out. I reached out to Zig. He reached out to me on Twitter. So uh, I am available if you have questions or if um, you need help or anything at all. Just let me know. I'm here. Truly amazing. John, thank you so much for coming today. I appreciate you, buddy. Hey, Zig. Great to see you again, man. We'll have to do this again soon. For sure. Hey, friends, nerds, geeks, and Ziglets. That's going to close out today's episode of the Zigbits Network Design Podcast, where we highlighted a true, a real automation case study of the Parliament Precinct Network with my friend, John Capobianco. Hey, make sure you go follow John on Twitter to see what else he is working on these days. Today's show notes will be at zigbits.tech slash 78. 
Hey, we are doing another awesome, outstanding giveaway, Zigbit's-themed giveaway this month. And this month, we are focused on automation and programmability. So our Zigbit's February 2021 giveaway bundle includes DevNet, DevOps, Python, DevACS, Dev Associates, and so much more. In fact, today's guest, John Capobianco's book titled Automate Your Network is in this giveaway as well. So to see all of these details about this giveaway and to get yourself entered into it, simply go to zigbits.tech slash giveaway. This will be our link for all of our new future Zigbits giveaways moving forward. Hey, if there's something you would like us to give away in the future, let us know. We are starting to plan out our March and April 2021 giveaway items right now. Hey, if you didn't know, we are creating a network design course. I know it's weird, right? We're doing this a vendor agnostic, certification agnostic network design course. And it doesn't matter where you are with your career. We are creating a network design course. So if you are just starting out, it'll work for you. And if you have been doing this stuff, working in networking and network engineering for the last 30 years, it'll still work for you. The intent is to teach everyone network design and how important it is. If you want to hear weekly status updates on where we are with this course, join the email list at zigbits.tech slash network design. Hey, if you liked today's episode, if it inspired you, resonated something within you, or provided a level of real-world context, let me know. You can find Zigbits on all the socials, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, by searching for Zigbits. That's Z-I-G-B-I-T-S. You can also send me an email to feedback at zigbits.tech. As always, I appreciate you, and I thank you for listening. Remember, don't forget to attack your goals, attack the day, attack your life, and make progress, my friends. Until next time, bye for now.